So, it's been a while since the last words to that effect. My planned short break got quite a bit longer. Life and work and children and all those sorts of things got in the way. So, if you've stuck with the show, thanks for coming back. There are lots of upcoming episodes I think you'll really enjoy. And if you're listening for the first time, well, there's a back catalogue of two dozen self-contained episodes. You can listen to them whenever you want, in whatever order you like. Today's episode is a recording of the live show I did in September as part of the Dublin Podcast Festival. It was in Liberty Hall in Dublin and was a double bill with Helen Zaltzman's The Illusionist. Her show was fantastic, as always, and it was it was such an amazing night. Definitely something I'll be doing again. I'll keep you updated. The show itself was a considerably expanded and edited version of episode 6 of this podcast, so if you've listened to that episode already, some of it may sound familiar, but the live show was twice as long and with live music composed and performed by the wonderfully talented Ken McCabe. So all the details about the new season and other updates will be at the end of this episode, but for now I'll leave you with words to that effect, live at Liberty Hall. Hi, thanks for coming. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. In 1881, an American neurologist named George Miller Beard published a hugely influential book. It was called American Nervousness, and in it he laid out the symptoms, cures, and implications of what he called neurasthenia. It was a diagnosis of a lack of nerve strength. It was something like what you might call nervous exhaustion or what was often and is still called a nervous breakdown. Now, if you were alive in the US or in Europe in the 19th century, there was a pretty good chance you might be diagnosed with neurasthenia at some point. Well, there was a pretty good chance you'd be diagnosed with quite a lot of things in the 19th century. Cholera, smallpox, typhus, yellow fever, you know, you could take your pick of horrible infectious diseases. But we're just going to focus on one very different illness, neurasthenia. Why? Well, because neurasthenia was not really, not fundamentally a medical problem. It was a social and cultural ailment. 
It was everywhere in the late 19th and early 20th century, and it's still with us today in various guises. It influenced literature and popular culture, and it shaped how we think about depression and trauma and mental health more generally. So, this is a story about a long-forgotten nervous disease. But it's also a story about science and culture, psychology and mental health, feminism and creativity, war and masculinity, about ghost stories, science fiction and cowboy novels. So let's go back to George Miller Beard and his book on American nervousness. Now Beard didn't coin the term neurasthenia, but he was the first the first to kind of write extensively about it, and he popularized it across the world in both medical circles and among the general public, to the point where pretty much it, it was basically a household word. And if you if you read books or magazines or newspapers from the around the 1880s right through to at least the 1930s, you find accounts of neurasthenia everywhere. There are hundreds of newspaper ads claiming to cure the disease. Characters in fiction are constantly being struck down with neurasthenia. And now what all these doctors or authors or advertisers or newspapers readers actually had in mind when they described neurasthenia was not necessarily the same thing at all. So what exactly is neurasthenia, you may well be asking at this point. How do you know if you have it? Do I have it? Because defining neurasthenia is not really that straightforward at all. The year before American Nervousness, Beard wrote uh, another medical treatise on the subject, and in it, he listed a ludicrous number of possible symptoms. Tenderness of the scalp, cramps, sweating hands and feet, excessive yawning, a lack of concentration, feelings of hopelessness, morbid fears, profound exhaustion, numbness, convulsions, insomnia, a sudden giving way of general or special functions, temporary paralysis. So... <laughs> Some people at the time, and far more subsequently, were understandably a little dubious at such a huge range of symptoms. But what Beard did do was to gather all of these possible symptoms into one understandable and, most importantly, treatable condition. In modern terms, neurasthenia patients were, they were basically suffering from what we might now classify today as anything really from stress to anxiety, depression, or PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is a, a wide spectrum of terms, but given you're all here in this room to hear a show about literature, followed by one about language, I probably don't need to tell you that words are extremely important, especially when treating a patient with mental health issues. Lots of the terms from this period, especially the idea of a nervous breakdown, are still used today by the general public, if not necessarily by doctors. So people use terms like a nervous breakdown or uh, a case of nerves, still quite a lot, uh, or a breakdown, whereas we then try and translate that into uh, sort of the approved terminology like uh, depression or mixed anxiety and depression or anxiety disorders. This is Professor Brendan Kelly. He's a consultant psychiatrist at Tala Hospital in Dublin and professor of psychiatry in Trinity College. He has a wide area of expertise, but he's particularly interested in the history of mental health. And just as in Beard's time, classifying an illness today, putting it into words, is a hugely important part of a psychiatrist's job. You are ill. 
means a really, really powerful thing to do, to tell someone they're ill. Um, and the question has to be, does it benefit the person if I do that, either psychologically or does it lead us to an understanding, a shared understanding? Does it lead us to a treatment? Does it correctly legitimize symptoms or legitimize the person being excused from certain obligations like work? Or does it incorrectly legitimize them being excused from certain obligations like criminal responsibility? So in the 19th century, declaring someone to be suffering from neurasthenia at a time with a very different understanding of mental health from today could be a huge relief. It turned what would otherwise have been a poorly understood and socially stigmatizing mental illness into something real, into something hopefully curable. So neurasthenia was, in one sense, simply a catch-all term for a whole range of health issues. But it was also so much more than that. Because when and why it was diagnosed, who could, and importantly could not, suffer from it, tells us a lot more about our history and our culture than it does about medicine. For Beard, neurasthenia was a modern disease, which was becoming more and more frequent in the Western world, um, and particularly in the US of his time. It was connected to what he saw as the increased pace of life to a rapidly changing world and to five new and disruptive areas of life. Steam power, the periodical press, the telegraph, the sciences, and the mental activity of women. There was, it seemed, more competition in the workplace, more stress, more hurry, more worry. But then, of course, this was nothing new. And this wasn't just Beard or only in the US, but across the world, including in Ireland. It is a constant of the human condition to believe that the current generation is more stressed and more distracted than the last, that the world has become impossibly busy and there's too much to do and that no one has any time anymore. To quote a psychiatrist, James Duncan, who was a leading Irish um, figure, he lived from 1812 until 1895. He became president of the Medical Psychological Association in 1875. And in his presidential address, he said, and this is 1875, a striking feature of the present age is that it is one of incessant mental activity. All is hurry, bustle, and excitement. Men have become restless and are ever seeking some new stimulus in the way of enjoyment or some new discovery in the path of science. Formerly, they were satisfied to jog on quietly in the easy way their fathers did before them. They did not hatch eggs by steam or make calculations by a machine. They had implements, but no machines. They disliked newfangled ways. Everyone is now anxious to secure advantage for himself before his neighbor. Is it necessary to prove that the greater the activity of the brain, the greater must be its liability to insanity? So he was worried in 1875 that everything was getting quicker. People were too busy. They couldn't cope and everyone would become mentally ill as a result. So back in the US, there were newspaper ads all over the place, and some of them from this time kind of sum all of this up quite nicely. One, for example, runs as follows. Neurasthenia has, during the present generation, come to be known as the national disease of America. In this age of hurry, worry, hustle, and a strenuous life and business, many people overwork their nervous systems and put too much strain upon them, which can lead to partial or total breakdown. Now, the solution in this particular ad is, wait for it, malt whiskey. 
So the ad uh, recommends Duffy's Malt Whiskey as invaluable to overworked men, delicate women, and sickly children. Um, so, you know, in most cases, to be fair, alcohol and caffeine were not advised for neurasthenia, but anyone who could get in the act was advertising their cure. So if you look at the newspapers from the time, you'd see loads of these ads for Dr. Williams' pink pills. They were basically just kind of iron supplements, but they were marketed internationally. Um, a huge budget went into sort of uh, uh, pushing this product as a cure for neurasthenia, for what the ads called a peculiarly American disease, said to be produced by the national habit of hurrying and worrying in the struggle for success. So, if stress and strain were causing neurasthenia, then the people most susceptible to it were the professional businessman, the banker or lawyer, the successful entrepreneur. In Beard's opinion, neurasthenia was an affliction of what he called the better classes. So that is to say, white, urban, professional men. So being neurasthenic isn't necessarily that negative at all, especially at a national level. The more people who suffer from neurasthenia, the more it's an indicator that the country is modernizing, urbanizing, excelling in business. And when Beard writes about it, he can't help but be sort of triumphant and nationalistic about the whole thing. So he writes at one point in something that sounds a little bit like a Donald Trump tweet, all this is modern and originally American, and no age, no country, and no form of civilization in the days of their glory possessed such maladies. Sad. Well, not the last bit. But, you know, there's a kind of a conflict. On one hand, there's a concern about the rise in incidences of harmful illness, but on the other, this same illness only confirms the superiority of the American people and their way of life. So among some of the slightly more negative aspects that Beard covers, several of the signs of American nervousness are a little bit suspect. So they include the phenomenal beauty of the American girl of the highest type, the eloquent, subtle, and persuasive nature of the American orator, and the abundance of American humor. A little bit suspicious. So neurasthenia in the end is very much a cultural disease, and pretty soon it was a firm part of the popular imagination, influencing everything from literature to tourism, doctors to presidents. And it's the treatments for the disease where things become particularly revealing. So neurasthenia was diagnosed in both men and women, but for Beard it was mostly a male affair and it overwhelmingly affected white, wealthy, urban men living busy lives. Neurasthenia rendered strong, important men weak, impotent, feminine. The frequently recommended cure, then, was to do vigorous outdoor activities, manly activities, horse riding, fishing, hunting, cattle ranching. For American Easterners, confined to the stress and the strain of the fast-paced city, this meant going out west to the American frontier. And it soon became known as the West Cure. A whole host of American men went out west for health reasons, and lots of them invariably wrote about it. The Western genre, the cowboy novel, was born out of this tradition, all wrapped up in ideas of the strenuous life, manifest destiny, the frontier, and other aspects of white American identity at this time. 
One such person was Theodore Roosevelt. Writer, soldier, statesman, rancher, hunter, explorer, US president, inspiration for the teddy bear, fun fact. He was advised to travel west for health reasons and his hugely influential writing shaped perceptions of the west for decades. Edgar Rice Burroughs, the best-selling author of Tarzan and an important early writer of science fiction, was a lifelong admirer of Roosevelt. And he, too, spent time living the cowboy life, much of it with his brother, who had also been advised to head out west for his health. And these trips provided the basis for Burroughs' western novels and, more importantly, the inspiration for his influential Barsoom or Mars novels. And these books became a foundation for decades of science fiction set on Mars. So all those books and TV shows and films about life on other planets you've seen over the years, you know, they all have their origin in, in this period in the, in the early 20th century, like most genre fiction. Roosevelt's close friend, Owen Wister, traveled to Wyoming to cure his neurasthenia, a trip which sparked his interest in the life of the cowboy. And then he wrote the phenomenally popular Western novel, The Virginian, in 1902. A decade later, Zane Grey, influenced by Worcester, published Riders of the Purple Sage. And these two books, The Virginian and Riders of the Purple Sage, they basically invented the Western genre. So all of the cliches of the Western that you know from TV, from cinema, and so on, they all come from these two books. The romanticized cowboy life, the black-clad, gunslinging cowboy, quick on the draw, but living by a strict code of honor, the shootout finale, all of these, they come from Worcester and from Grey. And then the novels were made into theatre shows, radio plays, TV series, films for decades and decades, continuing to influence, people how, influence how people saw the West. And then the amazingly named Dude Ranches were set up across the region to cater to Easterners travelling West to escape the neurasthenic city and recover their shattered nerves. So these ranches were attempts to recreate the West for Easterners who were reading books by the likes of Western Grey and were expecting to actually find this massively romanticized and mostly fictionalized version of the West. George Miller Beard had a lot to answer for. But Beard wasn't the only person popularizing neurasthenia at this time. And for lots of these doctors, neurasthenia was just as common in women as in men. So the other famous name of this period is a physician named Silas Weir Mitchell. Mitchell was kind of a celebrity of sorts. He was sort of, you know, the doctor to American high society. And so it was he who diagnosed Owen Wister, for example. But Mitchell advocated a very different cure for women suffering from neurasthenia. You're not supposed to write or paint or think in any possible creative way and eat three full meals a day and just lie in bed and do absolutely nothing. This is, yeah. <laughs> this is Dr. Dara Downey. She's a lecturer in English in UCD in Trinity and author of American Women's Ghost Stories in the Gilded Age. So when it came to treating neurasthenia, there were two very different treatments. For men, a vigorous and stimulating trip out west. For women, a complete removal of stimulus and a period of recuperation in bed. Or more simply, the West Cure and the Rest Cure. So the Rest Cure is immortalized in one really great, really great short story. It's a classic of American literature 
by a writer named Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Gilman, in lots of ways, was kind of reasonably typical of female writers at the time. She published fairly widely sort of a lot of short things, stories, um, articles, kind of polemical works that would have appeared sort of originally in magazines, which was how most people made their money in the 1890s. There were a lot of women writing at the time who were supporting their no-good husbands by writing for magazines. Um, And she was reasonably successful in her day. And one of the things actually that Gilman was most famous for um, as a writer was, as I say, her kind of more polemical pieces of work uh, where she wrote a lot about kind of the status of women in the home. Um, She also had a book called Women in Economics. And kind of a large part of, I think, why she's been picked up now in the 20th century, particularly kind of by um, feminists starting in the 1970s, was because she's one of the few people in the 1890s who tried, not always successfully, but she tries to position gender as not kind of essential, not linked to sort of physical traits. So um, she has a great line about kind of how it's really stupid to talk about uh, like the differences between a male and a female brain that you may as well as talk about like a male or a female liver. And so she was someone who kind of tried to put forward this general idea that gender was something that was socially constructed and that therefore women should and could be just as good and just as successful in the public sphere as men and that they shouldn't just be confined to the home. So the short story that Gilman is most renowned for is called The Yellow Wallpaper. And it was inspired by Gilman's own experience of the rest cure as prescribed by Silas Weir Mitchell. John is a physician and perhaps I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is dead paper and a great relief to my mind. Perhaps that is one reason I do not get well faster. You see, he doesn't believe I am sick. What can one do? If a physician of high standing and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that really there is nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency, what is one to do? So it's a story which takes aim not just at the rest cure, but at the entire patriarchal system which attempted to confine and suppress women. Back to Dr. Downey again. Really, it, it's a perfect little encapsulation of a lot of the, the kind of things that nowadays feminists are still trying to say about, you know, that it isn't just that sort of domestic life can maybe conceal or hide certain darknesses, but that it can actually create darkness and fear and that it can sort of produce a a very unpleasant way of life for women who are expected to be delighted with babies and delighted with housework and all of the rest of the thing. And when that didn't happen, um, there was an awful lot of pressure on them to conform to a particular kind kind of normality. So the yellow wallpaper is is very short, but it's a story that really captures your attention and and grips it. I first read it in the library in Trinity um, in sort of the first year of my PhD, and I just remember looking up when I finished it going, uh, uh, was everyone else in that with me? That was, oh my God, I can't just believe what happened. It's like it packs a real punch and it does it really, really quickly. So the story is about a woman who's suffering from postnatal depression. Her husband, John, in the excerpt you heard a minute ago, has diagnosed her with neurasthenia. And so he rents an old country house for them to stay in while she recuperates. 
there's a nice little room downstairs with chintz. She likes chintz, chintzy wallpaper. And he says, no, 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 you must go up to this miserable room upstairs that has this disgusting yellow wallpaper that has... She says, she keeps looking at the wallpaper and she's trying to work out what the pattern is in it. How does it repeat? What, what are the ways that it kind of comes together in a sort of symmetrical way? And she just can't work it out. And it drives her mad, literally. Um, she, she's writing in her diary, explaining to us about this yellow wallpaper and she starts to see things in it. Eventually, she, she starts seeing kind of multiple women and then these kind of shrink down to one single woman who she tries to free from kind of behind the pattern of the wallpaper. And at the end, Spoiler alert, um, she and the woman behind the wallpaper essentially kind of become one and she's basically turned into um, a phrase that some people may have heard, the mad woman in the attic uh, from Jane Eyre. She's kind of a version of Bertha Rochester, crawling around on all fours in this room, her hair all over the place. She's thrown the key out the window so that people can't get in and her husband breaks the door down and sees her crawling around and he faints and she just crawls over him. So in the end, for Gilman, the rescuer, which dictates avoiding all creative pursuits, ends up being the inspiration for a brilliant, enduring work of fiction. It seems that however neurasthenia was treated, rescuer or westcure, creativity and literature were there. Now, neurasthenia had close links with other related illnesses. It was always a very malleable, very adaptable illness. So when I mentioned George Beard's five modern aspects of life that were contributing to neurasthenia, the periodical press, those pesky women thinking, and so on, um, the first on the list is steam power, railways. And as train travel became more and more commonplace in the 19th century, it completely changed how people viewed the world. I mean, from the dawn of human history right up until that point, the fastest a human could travel was the speed of a horse. And there are lots of contemporary reports about how strange people felt riding a train at high speed for the first time. And it must have been pretty weird. Trains changed everything. They connected people across previously unthinkable distances. They heralded an age of travel for leisure, as well as aiding in military conquest and colonialism. They prompted the standardization of time. They were the beginning of a truly globalized world. But another thing they did was crash a lot. Train travel in the 19th century was, to put it mildly, not a safe way of getting around. The risk of serious injury or even death was scarily high by modern standards. So to take an example, in the year 1907 in the US, there were about 12,000 railway fatalities. So that's 12,000 dead people. That's not all of the thousands and thousands of injuries and so forth. To put that in perspective, the US at that time had a population about the same as Germany's, and last year in Germany, the total number of railway deaths was 150. So what quickly emerged was a type of what we might now call post-traumatic shock. It was commonly known as railway spine. So passengers involved in railway accidents, who would appear at the time to be relatively unharmed, would then later suffer the types of symptoms frequently associated with neurasthenia. So emotional outbreaks, insomnia, fatigue, and other symptoms occurred, raising questions about the relationship between mental and physical injury. And just as we saw with the men being sent out west to recover, to find their lost masculinity, 
railway spine was something that could produce in men symptoms that were coded as feminine. Tears and fainting spells and so on. You see a lot of reports at this time of like burly laborers and they're acting in an inexplicably hysterical fashion. And uh, that's another word, hysteria from the Greek for uterus, a word with a long subjective history of association with women. Soon then, with World War I, neurasthenic symptoms arose again, this time in the form of shell shock. And once again, the boundaries between mental and physical illness were broken down. So these were also boundaries between what might be seen as either cowardice in the face of battle or a serious medical problem. And many of those concerned with soldiers' health at this time, they were sympathetic towards men unable to return to the front due to shell shock, to symptoms brought about by trauma, but many were not. They saw it as a moral problem, a weakness of character. You know, men who should be strong and heroic were displaying cowardice in the face of duty. And obviously this was a huge issue of importance for any soldier in question. It could be the difference between a period of rest and recuperation on one hand, and imprisonment or possibly even execution on the other. And then there was the issue of compensation. Money is never far away. How much should the military be responsible for the psychological injuries sustained in war? And of course, this is a question that has never gone away. Back to Professor Kelly. You can draw a straight line from railway spine uh, to up to post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, the line is definite. It's maybe not quite straight. There are little kinks along the way as these things get changed and conditions, conditioned according to circumstances, definitions expanding and then contracting a little bit, moving from chiefly army population to civilian population and so forth in response to different things, in response to genuine suffering, but also in response to financial incentives. Um, for example, in the First World War, it was commonly thought that prisoners of war, POWs, were spared the traumatic effects uh, of, of conflict. That they, people wanted to become a POW because the vast majority were, were, were sent home in the end. Um, but then after, uh, when the military pensions were set up, you find uh, large numbers of POWs applying on the base of trauma while they were a POW. So the, so the definition expanded there, you know, it had disproportionately constricted. Being a POW was definitely stressful and traumatic, of course, but then it expanded a bit again, the official definition when the pension started, and then there was a reaction, so it constricted again, and then it moved more into the civilian population with post-traumatic stress disorder. So neurasthenia, railway spine, shell shock, post-traumatic stress disorder. Medical diagnoses are never only about medicine. Over the decades, our attitudes towards stress and trauma maybe haven't really changed that much. We'll always consider our own age the most stressful, the most susceptible to anxiety and other nervous ailments. So we're now we're seeing people worried that um, young people especially are spending all their time with uh, computer screens and social media and uh, mobile phones and things like this um, and that therefore they're more liable to psychological problems, uh, poor concentration and so forth. There's really no evidence at all that this is true or ever was. It's just a constant that humans think their lives are far more hassled and harried than those who came before them. 
So these worries reflect not just our own anxieties at a personal level, but the cultural and social anxieties of our time. For Beard, it was urban life, transport, and the changing roles of women. Today, it's concerns about the internet, communications, social media. Neurasthenia may have long disappeared as a medical diagnosis, but its legacy lives on in our terminology and our attitudes towards mental health, in our understanding of how science, medicine, and culture are always inexplicably, inescapably intertwined. And of course, in some particularly great works of literature. Thank you. So that's it for the Tide You Over Until the New Year episode of Words to That Effect. Thanks for listening and for bearing with me while I got a new season of episodes together. Things will be back to the usual fortnightly schedule with a new episode every second Monday. So season three will officially kick off on Monday the 14th of January. In the meantime, I'll be on all the usual social media places. The show's on Facebook and Instagram. I'm on Twitter at CEDREAD. And the Words That Affect website is wttepodcast.com. Thank you to those of you who got in touch to ask about new episodes. It's really nice to hear from people who are enjoying the show. And a particularly big thank you to those of you who have signed up to support the show on Patreon. If you'd like to contribute a few euro to help cover the modest costs of the show, then you can head over to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash w-t-t-e. This show is a part of the Amazing Headstuff podcast network. There are loads of other great shows, so if you want to have a listen, head on over to headstuff.org. And finally, thank you to Ken McCabe, who mixed this episode and whose music you can hear on the live show. So that's everything. I hope you've had a relaxing and literature-filled Christmas, and I'll see you on the 14th of January for Season 3. This podcast is part of the Headstuff podcast network.